0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 2 of Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong, and we have got a lot of politics, law, and maybe even some things in between. Joe, what are we going to talk about today?
1: Thank you, Jessica. It's a hot summer here in Los Angeles. Today, we are going to talk about DACA, We're going to talk about a governor recall update here in California and the latest out of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Let's jump into this episode with DACA. And what is DACA exactly? For those of you who are not in the know, DACA is an acronym for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And in short, it's an Obama-era immigration policy that allows some children brought to the United States by people who have unlawful immigration status to receive renewable two-year periods of relief from deportation, as well as becoming eligible for a work permit and being able to apply for Social Security and Medicare. These people cannot have more consequential misdemeanors or felonies on their record or they are not qualified for the DACA program. It does not provide a path to citizenship, and it was announced in June of 2012. That makes it an Obama-era program, like we said. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services started taking applications for DACA, on August 15th of 2012. So it's baked into the cake. It's been around for a good while now. Since it went into effect, there have been a number of lawsuits. And Jessica, this isn't the first big challenge to DACA. Can you tell us about the most recent one that happened this week?
0: Absolutely, far from the first big legal challenge. If there's anything that's an evergreen statement about DACA, it's there's a challenge regarding DACA. And it maybe is worth repeating something that you just mentioned, Joe, which is that this is a program that was set in place by an executive memo. So DACA is not here because of congressional legislation, and in fact, these challenges would not be happening if DACA was implemented via the legislative process. So, so much of this is because the legislation failed. We never got comprehensive immigration reform on the legislative level. And President Obama said, okay, As a stopgap, as a temporary measure, I'm going to, by executive memo, create this program, create DACA, and basically say to the Department of Homeland Security, we're not going to prosecute and deport this group of people. So it deals with prosecutorial discretion. Now, if I were to try and kind of wrap all of these challenges up into a bow or try and put them into buckets so that they're understandable. The first thing I would say is a lot of the challenges focus on whether or not the president and the Department of Homeland Security even have the authority to do this, meaning can you only implement DACA via Congress, the Senate, and then the president signing a bill via the legislative process? And then there's a whole host of other Uh, challenges that deal with how can you end DACA. But you asked me, you know, is this the first big challenge? And the answer, of course, is no. I think I'm just going to highlight one other challenge that we've had with respect to DACA. And that was a case that, Joe, I think this was one of the very first cases we talked about on Passing Judgment. It was a decision that the Supreme Court made in June of 2020. And what happened is that President Trump, said, we're going to end DACA. And there was a challenge made to that decision, and it was a challenge under the Administrative Procedures Act. And the challenge was basically, okay, President Trump, you can probably end this, but you didn't go about it the right way. And in fact, the way you went about it violates the law. It violates federal law because it's arbitrary and capricious. The case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court June 2020, Chief Justice John Roberts says, yep, you're right. The way the Trump administration tried to end DACA is so extremely sloppy that it actually does violate the Administrative Procedures Act because it is arbitrary and capricious. So that was really the first kind of big DACA case that I think we talked about on the podcast.
1: All right, Jessica. So this one is a totally separate case, am I correct? And who sued in this case? And then what did the judge say?
0: Yeah, this is a totally separate case. And in fact, this case was pending while the other case went up to the Supreme Court. And the judge in this case, Judge Haynan, said, OK, let's pause this case while we figure out what the Supreme Court is going to say. So this is a challenge to the legality of DACA and whether or not President Obama ever had the authority to implement this program. And so specifically, the challengers are um, led by the state of Texas and other Republican states. And they basically made a couple of arguments. But again, they kind of fall into two buckets. Maybe I overuse this metaphor. I'm sure I do. But I try and simplify these really complex issues. So the first thing they said is there's a procedural defect under the Administrative Procedures Act, when DACA was first created, the the Department of Homeland Security did not go through the process of notice and comment. So when you try to implement a program like this, the Administrative Procedures Act says, okay, administrative agency or executive agency, you can do this, but you have to give the public notice and the ability to comment. And the first thing the lawsuit says is basically, you didn't do that. And the judge agreed. The second attack on DACA is a substantive attack, again, under the Administrative Procedures Act, this federal law. And the substantive attack basically goes like this. Congress is the only one who can make a decision in this area. And two things. One, the judge found that Congress actually did Act Did pass a law in this area and therefore the executive branch can't come in and try and basically overturn that with this executive memo. The other thing the judge said is that even if Congress hadn't spoken, that the Department of Homeland Security still could not have implemented this, that they still didn't have the power. So this kind of second defect, this substantive defect under the Administrative Procedures Act, it really, I think, boils down to saying Congress is the one who has the power. The executive branch is not the place where you have the power to create DACA. And as I said, the judge agreed with both of those particular attacks and that's the decision that the judge made. It was a summary judgment. There was no trial. And the judge granted a permanent injunction. Um, what the judge said specifically, Judge hanen is that those who are already DACA recipients, that this ruling won't immediately affect them. And people can continue to submit new applications, but those applications should not be granted. So that's where we are right now for people who... Our dreamers, no dreamers, that's the state of the law right now.
1: All right, Jessica. So the big question on my mind and perhaps some other people's minds is, is this particular case destined for the Supreme Court? Will it find its way there?
0: So it. May be destined for the Supreme Court. The next thing that's going to happen is the Biden administration is going to do a couple things, but one of the things the Biden administration will do is they'll appeal this to the Fifth Circuit. That's the court of appeals that oversees um, cases that come out of the district court in Texas. And the Fifth Circuit is notoriously known as, or, you know, either happily or notoriously known as, a conservative. Court of Appeals. So it's entirely possible that they would uphold this decision. I might not make the same prediction if the case were in the Ninth Circuit, uh, which is obviously more liberal. But I think it's entirely possible that the decision is upheld. And then because this is a nationwide injunction, I do think it's going to be hard for the Supreme Court to say, no, we're not going to hear it. If they decide not to hear it, it means that whatever decision the Fifth Circuit makes is the decision that will stand.
1: All right, Jessica, you mentioned that judge's name before. Let's talk about this particular judge. This is Federal District Court Judge Andrew Haynan of that Southern District of Texas that we've been talking about for the last several minutes. Judge Haynan was nominated by George W. Bush in 2002 and also confirmed that same year. He's the same judge that struck down DAPA, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. In 2015, Judge Haynan granted the state of Texas's preliminary injunction against President Obama and by doing so blocked his administration from implementing DAPA. That's the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans program. DAPA was a similar immigration policy to DACA, except it focused on certain undocumented immigrants who by that point had lived in the United States since 2010 and had children who are American citizens or are lawful permanent residents. Judge Haynan's ruling was affirmed by the Supreme Court in June of 2016. That was an only an eight-member bench because that was after the death of Antonin Scalia. And there have been other challenges to DACA, Jessica, that I've read about. Can you please run down some of the history of those other challenges?
0: Yeah, really briefly. So I think Judge Hanen's ruling essentially stood as a result of the Supreme Court deadlocking four to four. Joe, of course, we've talked about a lot on the podcast that in February of 2016, Justice Scalia passed away, and then the court made a number of decisions where they deadlocked four to four. If you deadlock, it's basically the same as the court not hearing the case at all because the lower court decision stands. And that's in part why we don't have that DAPA program anymore. So you know, in terms of the other challenges, we talked about a couple of them, but I think the important thing to know is that the challenges have really come in a couple of flavors again. The challenges have been like the one we just talked about where it's a full frontal challenge to, DACA uh, is not a legal program, it was never a legal program and the executive branch never had the authority to implement it. And then there's the other case that we talked about, that June 2020 case, where Chief Justice John Roberts uh, wrote the opinion, and um, he said, okay, I know you're trying to end DACA, but you went about it in the wrong way. Now, I think probably looking forward, not looking at all of the challenges that are currently facing DACA, looking forward, the question is, what will happen next? Now, the Biden administration has said that they are going to engage in what's called rulemaking, basically an executive agency tightening up the rules around this executive policy. And that could cure some of the procedural defects that Judge Haynan talked about in his ruling. I think that's why it's particularly problematic to supporters of DACA that he made basically a two-part decision that it wasn't just based on procedural defects it was also based on substantive defects meaning congress is the only one who can make this decision so the biden administration will engage in rulemaking Uh, they also will as we talked about uh, appeal the decision to the fifth circuit and then joe of course there's the other route here which is they're going to push for legislation and frankly All of these challenges evaporate if you can try and accomplish this through the legislative process. The big thing to look at will be, can Congress try and do this through budget reconciliation? If they can, then they don't have to worry about the filibuster in the Senate, and you can pass this legislation by a bare majority. So that's going to be a huge political thing to look at, which will, again, cause all these legal challenges to evaporate.
1: All right, Jessica, you said the F word right through there, filibuster, filibuster, filibuster. So I know we've talked about that a lot on our show, and I'm sure it will come around again, as it always does. But let's move on to our second topic for the day, which is the 2021 California gubernatorial recall election. And that is scheduled for Tuesday, September 14th. Now, all of you are not residents of the state of California out there in passing judgment listener land. But California is not the only state that does this, so it might be applicable to where you live as well. Now, in the past in California, the only other California recall that qualified for a general vote was in 2003 when actor and action hero Arnold Schwarzenegger replaced Governor Gray Davis in a recall election. Now, anecdotally speaking, Jessica, that was before I lived in California, but I was traveling here a lot that fall when that recall election was happening with Schwarzenegger. I remember being in California at a friend's house watching one of the late night shows because I remember that Schwarzenegger announced his candidacy on one of the late night shows. Maybe Jay Leno. I don't recall. And we all know how that played out. Arnold was served as governor of the state of California for a while. So this particular election is only the fourth time a recall election has ever been held in the total of the 19 states that allow recall elections. Although there have been at least 53 other attempts to remove a California governor at one point or another, six of those have been an attempt to unseat our current governor, Gavin Newsom. Now, it seems like recalls are like a holiday in California. Every California governor since 1960 has faced some kind of recall attempt or other. Now, each of those 19 states has a specified number of signatures required to trigger a recall election of an elected official at the state level. That's 13% of the votes cast for that office in the previous election. Now, the next step, if the necessary number of signatures are obtained, the Secretary of State confirms the petition, and then the election has to be scheduled within 60 to 80 days. In California, for this upcoming one we talked about, that's in just a couple months, September the 14th, Californians will only see two questions on the ballot, and first of which, should the sitting governor be recalled, and number two, who should replace that person? And we're going to talk about some of those people here in just a minute. It is worthy of note that this recall petition took place during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that there were over in the even in the midst of that pandemic, there were over five thousand volunteer circulators working to acquire those signatures to get that special election scheduled. It's also important to note the original deadline for acquiring the signatures was extended due to the pandemic. So they had more time than normal to get all those signatures, and they did get them. And, Jessica, that brings us back into Passing Judgment podcast land. There are at least two lawsuits dealing with this recall ballot. Let's start with the Larry Elder case. And full disclosure here, I personally once worked with Larry Elder at a radio station, although only on a fill-in basis. So setting aside that, Jessica, can you please tell us about Larry Elder and why he's suing?
0: Uh, I can tell you about why he's suing, and I can briefly tell you that that he's a conservative talk radio show host. And other than that, I can't tell you an enormous amount about him. But if I could back up for a minute, and I did live in California, of course, during the uh, 2003 recall. And um, one of the things that I think is probably worth mentioning and talking about the recall is how very different things are in California now than they were in 2003. Um, in that case, of course, we were recalling Governor Gray Davis, also a Democrat, but much less popular than Governor Gavin Newsom. A lot of people might not love Governor Newsom, particularly if COVID numbers start taking back up, but Governor Gray Davis really struggled in the polls. Another thing, the state is different now. The state is a, in a lot of ways, deeper blue state, and The people who are running in the recall to replace the governor are also very different. When it came to 2003, you had really some big names. You had uh, the lieutenant governor who was running and said, well, you need a fallback. Um, You had, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger who ended up winning and had international stardom and a little bit of, let's not forget, a little bit of political experience, and then you had some other people who were both kind of in and outside of the political world, who people generally knew about, or at least political people. We don't have those big names this time around. Well, also, there were 135 candidates at that time, this time 41. And you know, what's different? I think the biggest names, probably the former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner, and maybe Larry Elder. I... Governor Newsom has to be feeling pretty good about that. Uh, He managed to kind of hold the Democrats together. No big Democrat is running as the kind of fail safe, the just in case we vote to recall that there's a Democrat there who can take the reins. And I think he's looking at that list and saying, all right, people might not really love me, but do they hate me enough to say, we should go for one of these people. And he's really going to try and make this election about, do you want me or do you want the clown car? I'm not necessarily, you know, categorizing as the clown car, but I think that's the way he wants to see it. He's, I think his biggest weakness, Joe, and I'm curious to see what you think, but I think the thing that he has to be most worried about is the COVID numbers, the COVID numbers, and the COVID numbers. And then after that, um, apathy. That his base just figures, of course, there's no way he'll be recalled. He himself has told us that this is ridiculous and then that people just won't show up. I don't know. Joe, what do you think his greatest potential weakness is? And then I promise I will get to Larry Elder.
1: You know, there's a lot of open water between now and September 14th, Jessica, when it comes to COVID numbers. They've been spiking recently as the Delta variant takes hold in the United States and in California specifically. So yeah, that's definitely a problem. I agree with you. I don't know that any of the uh, other candidates have the type of star power to unseat him, even with some negative ticks that he got for that unmasked dinner that Governor Newsom had during the big part of the COVID wave last year. He had an unmasked dinner and was apparently very, very loud out dinner, uh, kind of woke up the neighborhood. So he got a lot of flack for that, and rightfully so. I suppose nobody's perfect. But Jessica, we were talking about Larry Elder, your friend and mine. Can you please uh, outline the nature of his lawsuit and why we're talking about it on our podcast?
0: And by your friend and mine, you mean um, I definitely have never met him. But yes, absolutely. So let's talk about him, a conservative radio show host, the Secretary of State. Refused to say he could be on the ballot, saying he failed to file complete information on his tax returns due to redactions. Um, This is the first election in California where we are holding the election under this law that says gubernatorial candidates have to release their tax returns. Now, I'm going to go on a slight detour, but I think it'll be worth it. California passed a law really in reaction to former President Trump not releasing his tax returns. And the law said, okay, presidential candidates, if you want to be on the ballot, on the primary ballot, you need to release your tax returns. And then there's this line at the end that says, oh, and the law also applies to gubernatorial candidates in the primary. Now, the law was struck down with respect to presidential candidates, which frankly, I think it should have. That's not a Policy opinion that's a legal opinion, and but the rest of the law stands with respect to the gubernatorial candidates, which again added just so it doesn't look like it's totally targeting President Trump, even though it was totally targeting President Trump. But okay, so we're now holding this first election where we are voting for governor under this law requiring candidates to release their taxes. But if you look at the legislative language, for this law. I don't think that it applies to recalls. Now, the Secretary of State has, I think, required it. She's reading this, I believe, in a different way than I am. And all of the candidates have released their tax returns. But one of the things that Larry Elder is arguing here is, or I I believe also there's um, another former elected official who's coming in to support this argument, which is he doesn't need to release these at all under California law. And frankly, I think he has a really good point on that. His other argument, where I think he again has a good point, is he says under the law, it kind of looks like the Secretary of State is supposed to help out a bit if the problem is redactions and not just say you're not on the ballot, period. He has another argument that I think is really not at all persuasive, where he talks about the idea that it's an equal protection violation to have him releases taxes, but not Governor Newsom. Now, Governor Newsom's not actually a candidate on the ballot, as strange as that sounds. And that argument, I think, just totally falls flat. But it is uh, ballot measure lawsuit season here in California, and this is one of the bigger suits. And for me, really interesting to talk about because it's an intersection of politics and the law.
1: It certainly is, Jessica. So sitting aside, Mr. Elder, the name Kevin Faulkner came up a few minutes ago when we were talking about the other challenge. Can you tell me about uh, who he is and what his challenge is?
0: Yeah. So this is a challenge which shows us how important it is to be able to list what your profession is. And under California law, you get three words. Now, Kevin Faulkner was termed out just recently as mayor of San Diego. Now, we've already decided under California law that San Diego is one word. So that doesn't count as two against him. But there's this kerfuffle over how he can identify himself. So we have concluded that former and ex is not permissible. Um, They're now fighting about whether or not retired is permissible. And it just... Shows you the problems that are brought up by only allowing people those three words. And also, in this case, I do have to say, in his defense, I'm really not sure what else he was supposed to say here. You can't say termed out because then you have too many words. And the guiding principle for judges is just to make sure that the public has truthful information and that they aren't being misled. Judges tend not to love to be in these decisions of having to, you know, sort out these ballot titles, although they often are pulled into this. So I don't know what's going to happen. You know, we could start some synonyms for former ex or retired, and um, the judge is going to have to basically pick one. And uh, that's what we will go with for Kevin Faulkner, who I think, again, is Maybe one of, if not the candidate with the most gravitas going into this recall.
1: All right, Jessica. Sounds like a job for Synonym Man, the Passing <laughs> Judgment Podcast's newest superhero. And finally, Jessica, before we get on out of here today, a new segment of our show that we just might call That's Not How It Works. Jessica, say it with me. Ready?
0: That's, That's not, not how, how it, it
1: works. works. Yeah, pretty good. Not bad. Not bad for our first try. Okay, this one involves Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a vocal supporter of former President Trump. She staged a press conference in her office on Tuesday when CBS News' Erin Navarro asked Greene if she had been vaccinated. She responded with what, Jessica.
0: She said, quote, your first question is a violation of my HIPAA rights. You see, with HIPAA rights, we don't have to reveal our medical records, and that also involves our vaccine records. Problem, of course, is that this is not, in fact, true under HIPAA, that she does have the ability to say whether or not she was vaccinated. And this brings up the question of does she, in fact, just not understand HIPAA and who's covered under HIPAA and who's not, Or does she fully understand HIPAA and simply does not want to reveal that she did, my guesses, did get the vaccine, but because she has peddled in such disinformation when it comes to COVID and the vaccine that she just doesn't want to admit that?
1: Yes, Jessica, and that is not the only news from uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene this week. Can you tell us the other reason she's in the news?
0: Well, related to what we just talked about, because she has been trafficking in um, disinformation regarding the vaccine. Twitter actually kicked her off for 12 hours. Now, Joe, I mean, does a 12 hour timeout really do anything?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't have children. I would ask you before I would ask anyone else. So maybe, but Jessica, I did look it up. Marjorie Taylor Greene won her district in northwest Georgia with 74.7% of the vote. That's 229,827 Georgians thought it was a good idea to send Marjorie Taylor Greene to Congress. And as we all know, Jessica, that's not how it works.
0: That's not how it works. We're definitely making that a permanent part of the podcast. I love that. And you can find Joe on Twitter and Instagram at In Dep Day. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. The podcast on Twitter at past Judgment Pod. On Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. It is summer, and I will soon be done with my classes, and I will be upping our social media presence a little bit. And... Um, Joe, you know what this means. If it's summer, the days are already getting shorter.
1: Oh, don't ruin my afternoon, Jessica. Thank you to our listeners. We do love having these conversations with you. Follow us on Twitter and elsewhere. And always remember, that's not how it works.